Before we begin, today's episode contains mentions of suicide and eating disorders. So if that is a sensitivity for you, you may want to skip today's episode. Coffee at Ground Zero, North Korean border, accidental CEO. Today on The Pursuit, Hannah Song. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. And I'm excited because today's guest is Hannah Song. Hannah is the CEO of Liberty in North Korea, leading her team in assisting North Korean refugees escape through the Underground Railroad in China and settle in safely to South Korea or the United States. Now, Hannah and I are friends because we went to the same church for many years. So in today's episode, you're gonna hear names of people that are our friends that are mentioned, and we don't explain who they are, but that's okay, because just know that they are part of her story. And in some ways, that story, her story of activism, started by serving coffee to first responders at Ground Zero after 9-11. So Hannah, tell me about where you grew up. So I was born in Okemos, Michigan, in a town that's very small and very white. Wow. And so I was born there. How did your parents end up in Michigan? So I think the story goes that my parents had immigrated to the United States in the 70s. My father had known my mother and her family in South Korea. He had actually been my mom's tutor. Uh-oh. Sorry. He had been my mom's older sister's tutor. Okay. And so my family loved him and wanted him to just be part of the family. They got married in Korea, came here, and my dad had some sort of an opportunity in Michigan to do a business there or to work for someone there. So the family ended up there. My older brother was actually born in Chicago, and then myself and my younger brother, we were born in Michigan. How long did you stay in Michigan? I stayed there until about fourth grade, and then the summer before fifth grade, we moved to New Jersey. Mm. My dad worked a lot. He was a workaholic. What did he do? He always had his own business. So when he was in Michigan, he was really fortunate to have worked at this retail denim type store, worked with somebody that really believed in him, gave him an opportunity just in the shopping mall, worked there really hard. My mom would go and help sometimes. Uh, And then they also had a laundromat, just a coin laundromat. So I remember being really young, going with my brothers. I thought it was the coolest place because we would just roll around in those carts and just steal all his change and buy all the food out of the vending machines. So I remember that from my childhood and, you know, we're so oblivious to how difficult things are for our parents, but my dad was constantly working all the time. And I don't think I realized that till I was older. And on the flip side, my mom practically raised us by herself, three kids, two very active boys and me who was, uh, I was a pretty crazy child to say the least. So she had it really, really difficult. In fact, when I think back now, Mm -hmm. I'm so incredibly grateful to my parents, but especially to my mom. And I think a lot of times, a lot of times, you know, my, my mom actually made the choice not to work when we went through really difficult financial times. Mm-hmm. Um, my father really pushed her to, to get a part-time job and to work mm-hmm. because he said, you know, he needed help yeah. and th- it, there was nothing else that we could do unless she were to go out and to get a job. Right. And, you know, she was really adamant and she said, you know what? It doesn't matter how much money we have. I can go out and barely make minimum wage. But she says, if something happens to our kids and they end up on the wrong path or they end up in the wrong crowds, do you know? how much we will regret having made this decision? Do you know how difficult it will be for us 
later on down the line, no matter how much money we might have. Mm. So she said there is a full-time job at home for her that she said needed to be done and that as kids they, that we deserved her attention and mm. that we needed her. And so she really made that difficult choice to be there and throughout our entire lives, yeah. raising us and frankly, taking the brunt of so much. Yeah. I don't know how your kids are, <laughs> but we were not easy. Yeah. And especially for me, I was really, I was really difficult growing up, mm. especially to my mom. I was the only girl, but didn't have a great relationship with her. Okay. And so this was definitely something that when I think back, I'm incredibly grateful for, uh, for them. So, you know, my dad was always working, had this coin laundromat, ended up going and starting his own business in New York, a clothing business somehow. So random. Don't know how he ended up in yeah. that. And essentially was just in New York and was flying back and forth. And it was just really difficult. So they finally made the decision, let's just move everybody to New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So we went there. My mom spent a lot of time trying to find the right place to be yeah. and essentially said, we want them to be in the best schooling district doesn't matter where we live. They have to go to the best school. Right. So we ended up in Allendale and I think Allendale was, I think it was maybe like 99% white. Yeah. I remember my high school, there was a handful of Asians and like one black guy in mm. our school. So the entire school was so incredibly non-diverse. Yeah. Okay. So you grew up in Michigan, didn't really face race. And then when you moved to New Jersey, it's, it's still insulated from sort of this integrated community. Um, but as you're getting older, certainly you're becoming more aware of differences and immigrants. And how did you navigate that space? It was difficult. And I don't think I realized until later on how difficult it was. There were definitely times where there might be like outward racism that you would face or hear people calling you chink or that kind of stuff. The difference, though, was, you know, we were it was a really nice neighborhood in town. So I think a lot of it was more my own issues with identity and insecurity and just this becoming suddenly very cognizant that I'm so different. I don't look like anybody. Mm. It was really hard to fit in. For me, the way I think that manifested was just feeling just a deep sense of insecurity all the time, just not knowing who I was. Mm. I think I was angry and I didn't know how to express that. To be honest, again, this is yeah. where I feel bad for my mom because a lot of times I think she bore the brunt of my anger and um, it wasn't blaming them for moving. It wasn't anything like that. I think it was that turmoil of just being in that age range and going into your teens and all the typical angst of being a teenager right. on top of now dealing with all these feelings and emotions that you don't know where it comes from and how to really deal with that. It's like a mixture of teen angst and like self-loathing. And it's like the, the object of that is your parents and your mom's yes. around. And yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think, I think I, I had a lot of internal turmoil and again, a lot of internal anger. I didn't know where it came from or right. really how to deal with it. And so I think my response to that was, and I, I think you use the right term self-loathing. There was just a lot of just anger. And I think that became hatred, hatred toward myself. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to deal with that, how to handle it. I just constantly felt like I didn't belong. I didn't have a sense of identity. I didn't know who I was. Yeah. And it was so strange because to be honest, externally, you would have never known. I was so active in school. I was in every club. I was very outgoing, you know, did sports, like never showed it externally. Yeah. But internally, there was so much turmoil. Um, and so it essentially just manifested in ways that I think essentially was just very dangerous behaviors toward myself. 
um, it developed into an eating disorder that I had over a very long period of time, um, even into college. It was depression, which I didn't know to call it that until much later in life. It wasn't as, uh, you know, we weren't as aware of what those things should be called or how to identify them. Who knew? I don't think anyone knew. I'm a very private person. It's in fact, I was talking about this the other day with my mom because she always says that to me in a way that I think is hurtful to her. Mm. She said I was always private. I would never talk to her about anything. Yeah. And I would never really talk to anybody about that, to be honest. I think your fear is always you don't want people to find out who you really are. Mm. So I struggled with that through late high school and then into college. And then when I went to college, um, even towards sort of late high school, you remember AOL? Yes. (laughs) We're certainly dating ourselves here a little bit. (laughs) With AOL and things like that, it was so strange because they used to have like chat rooms and you could go into like Korean chat rooms. And it was the first time I kind of started to find a sense of community and meeting and talking to other Korean people. I know it sounds super weird. AOL, (laughs) AOL Korean, you know, I don't know. It was something strange, whether it was in like the online or I actually started going back to that church that my parents had gone to and just in a way looking for community, maybe without realizing it and looking for people who um, maybe looked like me, who maybe had a similar background that could relate to me. And, um, and so it's kind of started there and then going to NYU, I mean, was, it was almost culture shock for me because there are so many Asians. And so sort of swung the pendulum the other way. And then suddenly all my friends were Korean American or Asian. And it was such a shock. And going there, then I realized, one, I am actually really white. (laughs) Thinking about my upbringing, (laughs) my parents, we wear shoes in my parents' house. Really? Yeah. Even to this day, they do. When my mom comes over to my house, I have to tell her to take off her shoes. It's the most ironic thing. I love that that's like the most culture shock thing. That's the thing I react to the most. I always have to it's go like there, shoes in the house. But I always have to go there because that's what I that think is, really yeah. helps to explain how white my family is. So not realizing that until I went there. But again, just starting to feel a sense of community or even acceptance. And, and it, again, it's just strange because it was something that was suddenly so familiar. I could meet somebody and suddenly connect in a way that um, was just very different. And I had never experienced that. And there was something reassuring in that being like, oh, I'm not so different, actually. Mm. You know, but just because I started to connect with people didn't mean all those problems went away. You grew up, in your words, white. And you felt this sense of dissonance in your identity. And then when you get around Korean Americans, you feel this sense of community, even though culturally you're not Korean American, like you're white. Like, how (laughs) how did that all work? I think it's all a journey. Yeah. You know, I was always on such opposite ends of this sort of pendulum, you know, and I needed to experience the whole gamut from side to side to eventually find myself back in the middle, if that makes sense. Right. You know, when I went to college, I had a chance to meet so many diverse people. I was in New York City. It wasn't just being around Koreans, Korean Americans. It was around every kind of person. And going to college was also very formative for me. It was really a place where I began to finally form my sense of identity. I was exposed to so much more and it was not just being in New York City, it was going out, it was working, it was being able to 
volunteer around the city was being able to see everything from poverty and homelessness mm -hmm. to privilege yeah. to learning about the world to beginning to learn about myself being exposed to all different types of people and and so it was really this very rich and diverse experience that began to help me to shape my view of the world and who I was. Okay. My freshman year, all those problems that I had in high school carried on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my freshman year was just crazy. It was just having a lot of fun yeah. and doing a lot of things I shouldn't have been doing yeah. and realizing that it was, again, my response to not knowing how to deal with everything I had brought with me mm -hmm. from years before. And so I just decided I need to to run away from sort of the people that um, I was with and yeah. the things I was doing. And so went to Europe for half a year, came back, kind of recalibrated my life, became a hermit, and it was the best thing ever. My junior year of college, um, I was living down in um, Wall Street. Okay. And that was September 11th. And I remember I was two blocks away from the World Trade Center. Wow. I remember waking up and my roommate, I'm getting ready for class. And my roommate comes over and says, you need to look at the, the news. And so I came over and I'm watching the news. And one of the planes had already hit one of the towers. Right. And we were just confused. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. And terrorism wasn't even a thing then. Right. So we were like, oh my gosh, it's a terrible accident that this has happened. Right. So not thinking anything of it, go get ready for class and throw my stuff into my bag and I just leave for class and I'm going down an elevator, you know, see this girl in my building. She's got her camera. We walk outside and we walk right over to right in front of the, yeah. um, the towers and just standing there. And it is shocking. The, the image you see stuff falling from the windows and you see people hanging out of yeah. the side and there's stuff all over the ground and there's crowds of people just standing there and we're standing there the police are there but we're they're not moving anymore. we're just standing there looking at the scene and everyone's just confused and i don't know how long we were there but long enough because the second plane crashed and yeah. we watched that crash and that's when we wow. knew something was wrong and so again just standing around people are confused and we must have been there long enough because all of a sudden the first tower started to collapse. And I don't even remember what happened. It was just chaos. People were just screaming, run. Right. So we start running. We started wow. running toward Chinatown. And I just remember we're like, what is going on? And in an instant, everything went black for a second. You were enveloped in this smoke yeah, cloud. The whole thing. And I'm just, I was shocked. But we all keep moving. And so I walked from there up to Union Square where I had friends living in the dorms there. And so just walked up there to my friend's dorm and we were just standing there. They were talking about the news and what they had heard what happened was happening. And we just didn't know what to do with that. Didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what to do with it. And um, and then it turned out I wasn't able to go back to my dorm for about a month. Wow. <laughs> so I literally had whatever was in my bag, which oh was not gosh. really anything. It was my books. Useless. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, didn't have anything else. And so ended up just staying with a friend there for a few weeks. But I remember that first week they canceled classes, I think, for about two weeks. And that was a really big turning point for me. It brought me back to that place of confusion, like confusion in the world and wondering. I, I didn't have a relationship with God then. I'd had kind of this on and off because I had been to church. I hadn't mm -hmm. been to church. And the biggest question and a big question that actually I kept hearing about in the news and people around was, 
if there is a God, then how could he allow something like this to happen? Right. It wasn't even something I think I had been thinking, but I had started to hear it so much. And I think it really started to make me feel depressed and hopeless and wondering about the world that we live in. So that eventually led me to thinking I needed to just do something. I don't do well when I'm just sitting here in my thoughts and, and thinking these things and feeling helpless and hopeless. So at that time, Everybody was going to the Jacob Javits Center, was bringing yeah. stuff to volunteer, to donate. And I just remember just going straight down there. I was there as well. Were you there? Yeah. I was looking for Andy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was there with Michelle. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I think you see all this pain and confusion um, and you don't know how to respond. So for me, I think the way to kind of ignore the pain, to try to distract myself was just to, yeah. to be busy, to do what I could. So I remember going and saying, you know, where can I sign up to volunteer? And there was this long line of people just yeah. literally waiting in line, probably like three, four blocks to just put their name down to become volunteer. Just let me do something. Do something. And I just said, I'm not going to wait. I have nowhere to go. I literally can't even go back to my dorm. You have no place to go. I have go. no place to go. So I remembered there was this uh, Salvation Army truck and they were at that time just serving food and coffee to the workers that were yeah. going back and forth and organizing all the goods. And so I just walked up to the truck and I just said, hey, can I help out? And the guy said, oh, you got to get in that line to sign up if you want to volunteer. And I just said, I have literally nowhere to go. I will do anything that you need. And so he said, I'm really sorry. There's nothing to do. So I just stood around the truck and just started picking up trash. I wouldn't give up because I was like, I literally have nowhere to go. I'm not going to go back and hang out in my friend's place. So just started picking up trash and was just there hanging around. I wouldn't leave the truck. And this poor guy comes out and he goes, why don't you come into the truck? <laughs> so I went into the truck and I actually, he let me stay and do the overnight shift and just serve coffee and snacks. And I ended up just staying there actually for three days straight, just helping him out. And, you know, eventually became friends with all the Salvation Army volunteers and then all the workers that were coming back and forth and were starting to go down to ground zero. And so at one point they finally said, you know, we have to take the truck down there now and we're going to start bringing food and water and stuff like that down there. Do you want to come with us? So I said yes and went down there and essentially for about a week um, was down at ground zero serving just water, walking around, trying to bring things to the workers, just supporting all the other Salvation Army volunteers. And it was devastating, devastating to see just what had happened up close up close and it was so chaotic there were so many people the buildings were completely destroyed and there's all this big machinery and the craziest thing is every so often things would go silent they would tell everybody to be quiet and we would go silent because every time they found a body they would have everybody go quiet and we would line up and they would just out of respect they would bring this person's body out in silence. And, um, and so, yeah, it was really incredible to see that and to just see, I think the humanity, especially in the midst of so much destruction and pain and suffering. And so, you know, I think I felt so fortunate to be able to be down there 
And to just be able to witness that and to feel that in whatever small and insignificant way I could help to, you know, be down there more than anything else. I'm more grateful just for that experience that I had. And what is it in you that not only just says, okay, well, I'm going to go where people need help and you go to the Salvation Army truck. And then even when he says, no, I'm sorry, like there's nothing for you to do here that you just stay and you just find something to do. Where Where is that in you that said, I've been told no, but I reject that answer? Um, I'm incredibly stubborn. <laughs> is that all it is? <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I think it comes from, so two things. One, I think at that point, it was really just a sense of when you don't have much you're living for, it's not like you have much to lose. If they're going to say no, like, what do I have to lose by just standing around and sitting there? Yeah. But I think the other part of that is, um, you know, a colleague of mine told me this quote a few years ago, and I think it just really perfectly describes it. It's this quote by uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, and he says, hope has two daughters, uh, anger and courage. Anger at the way things are encouraged to make sure that they do not remain as they are. Wow. You know, again, this, there's something that had always stirred in me when it came to injustice. Mm. I think for me, that quote really perfectly sort of summed up maybe where that comes from. I felt like I lived without hope for so long, but to have hope meant that it could explain this anger that I felt sometimes and that I needed to have this courage to do something about it yeah. and to just not accept things the way that they were. But I'm struggling with that question that I'm starting to hear all around me. Yes. If God exists, then how could he let something like this happen? Right. Even at this point, you're still, you're not a Christian. This whole situation with 9-11 then sent me back into this spiral of depression and confusion that this is the world we live in. And if there really was a God, why would he allow something like this to happen? And it really led me to this point, just a really, really dark place. Never been in a place that dark before. And again, I don't know why or how, just couldn't explain it. Maybe it was the things that I had seen by being at ground zero, even though it had also brought hope and you'd seen the best in humanity, you'd also just seen just the worst. And, And so I was in a really incredibly dark place and just struggling with, you know, thoughts of suicide. And again, because to me, my life had never been worth that much. Hmm. I had always struggled with that self-loathing. And again, it was a lot of these old things I had struggled with and probably had just done a really good job of distracting myself with in college. And again, the ironic thing is if you had known me then through any part of my life, you would have never known that I was internally thinking about these things. I'd never projected it externally. You know, I was, I was going to class. I was working. I was interning. I was doing everything that I could that I thought I was supposed to be doing to set myself on the right pathway to succeed in life. Um, but I couldn't shake all of these things internally. Mm. And somehow a friend from high school, we had stayed in touch, obviously, but randomly just said, hey, do you want to do you want to go to church? And I said, sure, why not? What do I have to lose? So we went to a church down at Rutgers called Harvest and people were so incredibly friendly and welcoming and warm. Um, You know, my friend invited me to join a small group. And so I just remembered in that the first maybe month or so, just being blown away, just being like, this is so strange that people are so nice (laughs) and they're just 
so interested in, in who you are right. and just something about being there. It just felt nice. And so I started to think to myself, man, this is a place where for some weird reason I feel accepted feel like I could belong mm -hmm. and proceeded to just go to church with her, really started to actually get engaged in that community. Uh, and so was there probably for about a year with her. Um, and over that time, wanting so hard to believe that I would be healed of everything, that just simply coming to church mm. by simply beginning to learn about who God was, um, by eventually accepting uh, Christ, that these things were just going to heal me. And again, even just the sense of focusing so much more on feeling like I have to look like I'm walking the walk and it being more of an external sort of transformation more than an internal transformation. And so I think for the first year, I kind of fooled myself into thinking um, because of how I felt being in this community, feeling so accepted that I was healed. I was, I was healed and I had reconciled all of these issues I yeah. had dealt with in the past because they went away. I just didn't, you know, I think I was so distracted and I was so excited to be in community and to be like learning about God Yeah. that, you know, and of course those things were still there, right? just kind of a little bit more hidden yeah. or just waiting to kind of pop back up yeah. and uh, changed churches my senior year of college. I eventually had a chance to go to Bethany. And which again, is where we met. Which is where we met. Yeah. And then again, was just welcomed by this great community of people. Mm -hmm. Very different. <laughs> But, but wonderful. Right. I met Michelle mm -hmm. and Michelle and, and Erica, mm -hmm. I think were so instrumental to actually helping me to begin to recognize that I had not actually started to do any of the hard work. Wow. And so it was really there that I think I really struggled the most, but finally began to really reconcile the things that I just tried to push down, push away and think that I could forget about forever. Wow. So when you graduate college, what do you do for work? So I graduated and it was one of the most difficult years to find a job. This was 2003, yeah. I think. Yeah. I remember my senior year again, I had worked so hard throughout college. I had interned and worked. I mean, mm -hmm. I had the, what I thought was the most stacked resume I could have had. <laughs> Genuinely, I had applied to probably 50 jobs. What, what industry were you? So I had um, studied communications and um, journalism and I had worked in television throughout college. And so I thought I had wanted to do like television production, maybe do something on air and uh, had just applied to any job I could find though, not even just in television, right. actually only was able to line up like two or three interviews, was so disappointed, but I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. You know, the funny thing was actually after I accepted Christ and started going to church and all these things, I realized that I started to think, oh man, does this mean I have to become a missionary full time? What? I don't know where I got this idea in my head, but I was like, I thought I had to reposture my entire life. And it was just a very naive kind of foolish thing. But right. I was like, this is how I can best serve God with my life is that I go to the, the mission field. See. And so then I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll, I'll do a half step and do like Peace Corps. So oh, wow. really considered Peace Corps for a long time. And so that was actually my backup. But anyhow, ended up applying to all these jobs and then got this one interview for News Channel One and was like, man, this is it. I yeah. was like, God is opening one door for me. Yeah, and he's yeah. saying like, yes, this is where you're supposed to go. And I went and I did this interview and I bombed it, uh, bombed it. And I was like, I cannot believe uh, 
that I completely ruined this opportunity. This was my one door. This is my chance. 100%. 100%. Now I got to be a missionary. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I ended up um, graduating and not having a job lined up, which was the worst thing. I was such a planner. I had planned everything right, else right. in my life. I felt so insecure graduating like this, but said I had no choice. And so at that time, my good friend and I, you remember Jimin, yeah. we had been going back and forth to Central America, serving a missionary already doing a lot of short term. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we had kind of said, you know what, let's just go and actually go and serve him for a month. Yeah. And so I felt very uncertain about doing this. I don't even have a job lined up. And so I said, you know what, I'm just going to go. I'm just going to. So you literally did become a missionary. <laughs> But so the funny thing is, right before I was supposed to go on the trip, I actually ended up getting an interview through a mutual friend at um, an advertising firm at oh, Ogilvy okay. and ended up getting a job. And so I suddenly had this job offer and I had to explain, I'm actually supposed to go on missions for a month. Can I start at the end of the summer really? instead? They said, yeah, sure. And so... I was very fortunate, was able to go, end up going missions with the assurance I was coming back and I knew I had a job lined up and then being able to work in advertising for a few years. But on this missions trip, I don't even remember how I picked up this book, but I had this book called The Aquariums of Pyongyang. And it was a book about a North Korean boy who at the age of nine years old was put into one of North Korea's most brutal political prison camps with his family, wow. with his parents and with his grandmother. His grandfather had been accused of betraying the North Korean regime. And because of that, North Korea has a three generation right. policy of punishment. So this book was about his experience in this political prison camp over 10 years. So I started reading this book on the flight to this missions trip. And, and I just remember being so just heartbroken as I'm reading this book. Yeah. And then I'm reading through the book of Psalm and just the cries of King David's heart. And my, I'm just on this flight thinking through this and I literally felt so, I started to feel so helpless. How can I read about what's happening in this book and just be thinking about this and just pray about it and just feel like that's enough. It didn't satisfy me, but I remembered on the flight, just lifting up this very, it felt so trite. Honestly, it felt so trite. Just this prayer and just saying, yeah. God, if there's ever anything that I could do for North Korea, would you use me? And then, then that was it. And then we, we landed and then we spent this month with this missionary who was also actually a Korean missionary. Okay. And I felt so terrible because I could not stop thinking about North Korea. And so uh, my good friend I was there with, Jimin and I, you know, we'd be serving during the day, we'd be serving him and the short-term missions groups that were there. And then at night we'd just talk about North Korea with this missionary. And it just kind of became, I became obsessed almost. Wow. Um, so we returned and uh, one of Jimin's really close friends told me about Link, Liberty in North Korea. It had just started a few months earlier that year by a group of college students. They got together and mobilized and said, we need to do something. Let's go back to our respective campuses and do bake sales, sell t-shirts, and pretty much do everything we can to start to spread the word about what's happening and raise some money. And that money would then be sent back where we were able to send it to China, to some people working in the underground, the kind of modern day underground railroad. Yeah. And these shelters were hiding North Korean refugees. And so that's how college students in 2004 were selling cookies and t-shirts, helping to support shelters that were hiding North wow. Korean refugees. And so then how did you come into Link? I ended up being introduced 
to one of the co-founders of the organization through um, one of Jimin's friends and ended up just saying, hey, I'll do anything that you need. And so went to a benefit concert they were having at Rutgers and actually just showed up and just handed out flyers there and programs and refreshments. And then that was the extent of it. You know, got to meet the co-founder there and just said, hey, listen, I'm really serious about wanting to get involved. At that time, I was already working at Ogilvy. I was in advertising and just said, I work full time, but I will do anything that you need in my spare time. So, you know, it, it took a little while, but essentially got asked to start doing events locally or volunteering and helping out and just started to get more and more involved. And so my time was really busy just working full time. And then nights and weekends was was church and it was Link. I had a chance that following year, so a few months after I got connected to Link, to actually go to the border of China and North Korea. Wow. And so it was... That, I think, really cemented everything for me. Up until that point, I had pretty much read every book, report. I had watched every documentary, anything I could get a hold of. And again, there wasn't wasn't that much. So to have a chance to actually go on the ground for the first time, I didn't know what to expect. And so, you know, I remember we went there and we were supposed to go and actually have a chance to, to visit some of the shelters that we were supporting. And it was dead of winter. And I mean, freezing, freezing yeah. cold. Yeah. And so we get off the flight and it was just this super shady experience, right? right. Because our partner is not going to meet us right there in person, kind of signals us from far away. We're following him to this like dark alley, get into like a van uh, and then we're driving. Then we change cars again and then go. Wow. And then we get out quietly and go into this kind of like nondescript building and you go inside and all of a sudden you're just enveloped by this warmth and you hear these kids running around. And so we went inside and a few of the colleagues were with, one of them just runs off and just goes and plays with the kids. And then, you know, we sat down with the caretaker and we're just talking, just telling us what's going on and, you know, all the updates on, on the budget and the shelter and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And kind of looks over at the one kid that's playing with our colleague. And by this point, they're already in love with this little boy. Right. And so they start calling him Stitch, like from Lilo and Stitch. Oh my gosh. Because he's probably like five or six yeah. years old. He's got this super scratchy, adorable voice. He's like super hyper running around. You know, she looks over at him and she kind of nods. She says, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to him. So these kids are North Korean kids. And she said two days before we had gotten there, his parents had actually both gotten caught and arrested and would be sent back to North Korea. And so she, you know, looked at him and said, I don't know what's going to happen to him. His parents get sent back. You know, if North Koreans are caught and are sent back to North Korea, they're going to be interrogated. They're potentially going to be tortured. They're going to be in prison. They're going to be in trouble because they left North Korea illegally. And so... Obviously, there was no solution for this first hitch. And so we, you know, we just continued to say, hey, we're going to continue to support the shelter, um, keep an eye on Stitch, keep us posted, left. And I just remembered, I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that this poor kid, even as we were leaving, was like chasing us and was like trying to make us laugh. And he has no idea what's going on. And he has no idea that he's probably never going to see his parents again. And again, it's just so angry. Like, how does this happen to this small boy? And it's not just him. There's all these kids 
There's all these kids either whose parents have been caught and sent back. There's all these kids whose moms were trafficked in China and they were sold to these men there. Yeah. And now there's these half Chinese, half North Korean kids with no status. They have, wow. they're not recognized by the Chinese government. They have nowhere to go. Their moms have oftentimes been caught and sent back or sometimes yeah. sold to other men. And, you know, you have this situation that is so complicated that it doesn't feel like anybody's paying attention to. And again, you're just back at that place of being angry. Yeah. Like why is the situation the way that it is? And so that trip was really, um, it was really powerful. It was so different to be on the ground and to meet these kids, to meet North Korean refugees and to hear firsthand directly from them why they were leaving and what they were going through. To see somebody in hiding in China, knowing that at any moment, if they get caught, and they could be sent back, that fear is palpable. Yeah. And so um, going back and feeling even more so that there has to be more that we can do. So, you know, I knew I was going to quit my job eventually. And I knew I, I wanted to work full time with Link, but I just had debt <laughs> and I had things, <laughs> you know, there's a part of me that was, that was a little bit scared. And also thinking to myself, I said, I need to get to this level. I need to make this much money. I have to finish paying off my debt. It was always a plan. Yeah. I need to figure yeah. this out. But eventually I was able to do it and I quit my job and I moved to DC in 2006. Uh, and I said, you know, I'm going to start working full time here. And at that time in 2006, they had just opened an office a year before in DC and had a handful of people working there full time and nobody was paid. We had like a link apartment. And so myself and then one of the other um, girls that was working there, we just lived in this link apartment. We had like a small stipend just for food. And then that was it. Oh my gosh. So we were working together. Nobody was being paid living out of this apartment. I got a job at Cheesecake Factory <laughs> and was um, waitressing like nights and weekends. You know, to be honest, I think... I think my friends and everybody were really trying to be supportive, but probably also thought I was crazy. I was going to go quit my job to work full time for a cause that people were like, that's really nice, but that's probably something you do on the side. It's this group started by college students. Like, what are you doing with your life? Right. It's bake sales and t-shirt sales. Yeah. yeah. But in the back of my mind, I had always just thought, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to give everything and I'm going to see where this goes. Because to be honest, if this fails and I completely fall on my face and nothing comes of this, I will never regret not mm. being true to the conviction in my heart and feeling like I was responding to where I felt like God was calling me to. Yeah. And worst case, corporate America is not going anywhere. It will still be there <laughs> you know, when all is said and done. But this is that moment for you where you picked up cups at the Salvation Army truck. Yeah, I guess so. In Jacob Javits Center. It's, I refuse to do nothing. Yeah, I've never, I've never put that together. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It wasn't just this idea of, I want to go and do something. Because when you push comes to shove, it's easy to say those things. But what are you really willing to do? Yeah. You know, all right, what are you really willing to do? And was I going to do that? complaining and, and pushing the whole way, or was I actually going to go and be joyful and thankful and really say, this is where I'm supposed to be and just give everything to that. Yeah. Tell me about the journey from being an employee of Link to becoming the CEO. Yeah. Cause most CEOs of young startups are the founders. Tell me yeah. about that journey. 
Yeah, so I worked full time there for two years then with the co-founder. And, you know, we were in Washington, D.C. We had a small team of people working there. And I think like any startup or any young nonprofit, it's a struggle. You're figuring things out. You're not only figuring out your mission, your vision, your impact, but you're also trying to figure out how do you essentially run a business? Right. How do you employ people? How do you pay salaries? <laughs> pay salaries. It's, yeah. it's everything from A to Z that when you imagine yourself, because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are like, I would love to start a nonprofit. I would love to go work in nonprofit. Yeah. And it's the cause that drives you. It's the yeah. mission. It's the vision. But there is so much. <laughs> I think this is similar to ministry and right. where you're like, you may have a super gifted preacher or teacher, right. but the administrative stuff is yeah. what usually oftentimes slows yeah, down. You got to run a staff meeting. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. That was, I think, really challenging. And so just as a young startup, I guess you could say as a yeah. young nonprofit startup, just dealing with all of that in the first few years. So it was definitely challenging. And again, not only that, you're working on an incredibly complex and difficult issue. Yeah. And being in a place like Washington, D.C., working on an issue like North Korea is not a place where you're going to see a lot of wins. Yeah. So I think that was the really difficult thing. You're working on a hard issue. There's not a lot of opportunity to see significant progress. And you're trying everything you can while you're trying to also learn this issue the best that you can. Mm -hmm. So I think after a few years of that, the co-founder just got incredibly burned out. Mm. And we were in Korea working on a project and he made the decision and just told me I'm leaving. And it was very sudden. It yeah. was very abrupt. Came out of nowhere. Yeah. Pretty much said when we go back, you know, I want you to take over Link. What'd you think? I was scared out of my mind. Right. I was always happy to be a number two. Right. I'm here to support you. I'm here to do whatever you need me to do. But to be the person leading was not something that I could imagine myself doing. Yeah. And so in a lot of ways, you know, I always joke and say in the same way I kind of fell into this issue, I became an accidental activist. I think I kind of became an accidental CEO. Yeah. It, 100%. It was never my dream or vision to say like, I'm a leader and I right. want to lead this. Yeah. And so I was actually really concerned for Link. <laughs> And, and so over the course of those few months, then I actually met somebody who had started a small group on North Korea in LA. So this guy used to work for this organization, huge organization called Invisible Children. Mm -hmm. And him and his wife had actually seen this episode on Oprah Winfrey, uh, that Lisa Ling had gone into North Korea, done this documentary, and they learned about what was happening in North Korea yeah. um, through Oprah and were just shocked. They yeah. said, you know, here we are thinking we knew about things in the world and what was happening. And they said they just should, couldn't shake it. They had been working with invisible children for years, but suddenly North Korea just really took over their hearts. And so Justin and Kira, they decided they were going to leave IC and they were going to start their own group for North Korea. And so they did that um, with, you know, the blessing of IC. Yeah. Um, a bunch of the people there actually put money together and sent them off with a small grant. Wow. And then Justin and Kira left IC and actually then went to the border of North Korea and China and spent about two months in South Korea and in the border of North Korea, China, and were able to get connected to some people in the underground, in the underground church, just different people wow. that were working with North Korean refugees. And it was around that time that um, I was able to connect with, with them 
Justin and Kira are just some of the most incredible people you will ever meet in your life. I have never met a couple more just compassionate, generous, just amazing. And we just clicked. And and one of the challenges that we had on our issue was we kept saying North Korea is not a Korean issue, but yet it was only Korean American students at that time that were leading this movement. Right. And, you know, I said, Justin and Kira, they have been able to successfully mobilize a grassroots movement. This is what we need. Um, And so we met and said, hey, you know what? Let's merge our organizations. And so it was on that trip over the course of a week. We met every day and we pretty much merged the two groups. Oh, wow. Uh, And they were willing to kind of come under the name of of Link. What was the name of their organization? Their organization was called The Option. Okay. It was... Link's a better name. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Justin. Um, and so they said, all right, we're ready to go. They moved to Washington, D.C. literally like a month later. Wow. And we, again, we're all living together still. Oh my gosh. Yeah, one apartment. It was great. I love those times. So fun. So we lived all together and they pretty much helped us to, to wrap up things in D.C. We closed the office there and then we moved the whole operation across the country. And in the beginning of 2009, we sort of relaunched Link in Southern California with a new vision, a new mission. It was a really exciting time for us to to say, you know what, let's reimagine where we want to go and what we want to do with this issue. You had referenced people who are thinking about starting some organization to take action in this world. Knowing your story, what would be your advice to them? I would probably say two things. One, I would see what's out there already. Mm. What I really appreciated about Justin and Kira was when they got started, one of the first things they did was actually email every single North Korea group they could find online. And the problem was a lot of the North Korea groups like ours, we weren't well maintained. Mm. We had years old websites, Um, you're under-resourced, but they really made an effort. And I think that that's one of the reasons why they were so open to collaborating, to bringing their, what they wanted to do to another organization, if that was possible. And, you know, had we not have merged when we did, Link would not be what it is today. And so I really think that if there's a cause or there's um, something that you know, you really believe in, it's to understand who's out there and what are they doing already and to see if there's a way to come alongside them and to help really make that better, to amplify what they're doing or to bring a new sort of element to that. Uh, I always appreciate that. Um, And I really believe in that sense of collaboration and partnership where that's possible, especially if you have a shared vision. Mm -hmm. And the other thing too, is to just start doing, Mm -hmm. to just not stop dreaming to start doing. Again, I think Brian Stevenson said this once and he said, you know, you don't change the world with the thoughts in your head, but by the conviction in your heart. Mm. And at a certain point, you have to start to be true to those convictions and to act on those convictions and to just start going out and doing whatever it is that you can. Yeah. Um, whether that's volunteering, whether that's talking to people, um, starting to make moves toward that. And I really believe that if that's where you're called to be, that the doors are going to open, the opportunities are going to come. What I found is that just being faithful or trying to be faithful in the really small things, suddenly the really big things would come without even realizing it Mm -hmm. because you're just doing whatever comes in front of you. And somehow that's led us to where we are today. Being faithful with the small things and the big things will come. This is her story. I mean, showing up every day, refusing to do nothing, doing whatever it takes to follow her convictions. I hope there's someone out there who is inspired 
by Hannah's story of grit and resilience. If you've listened to the show and kept waiting to hear more about Link and the work that they do, I'm actually going to point you to an episode where she's interviewed by my friend Eddie. What's up, Eddie? On the New Activist podcast, there's a link in the show notes for you to find it. You can follow Hannah on Twitter at Hannah Song and follow Link at Liberty in NK. And of course, you're all already following The Pursuit at The Pursuit Cast. Now, as we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the path. John has always been that that voice of reason for me. Mm -hmm. You know, his response has always just been the same. It's just, shut up. (laughs) Just stop being ridiculous. 